You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Craig Cabanis. Done a series like this. It may be the last time. We'll see how it goes. And, uh, but we're doing a series called God and Politics. And so last year, last week rather, what I talked about, um, we looked at Romans 13, and then the application was for those of us who sort of checked out of the political process, and the challenge was to be a faithful citizen, to own our vocation of citizenship, take it seriously, be prepared, study, and vote. Uh, and, and, and pray and advocate for issues um, of righteousness in our culture. So it was really a charge and a challenge to those who, who, take politi- who take politics too lightly. Last week was you take it too lightly, here's what the Lord says. Today I want to talk, about, uh, talk to those who take polit- politics too seriously. We, we put too much into it. So that would be the danger of political idolatry. So we don't want to talk the exact opposite of last week, and they really have to be balanced. If you just hear this one and don't hear last week, you will think we're skewed in our approach. If you just heard last week uh, and not this week, you'd think the same. So hopefully these two messages will balance. Okay, Mark 12, verses 13 through 17, this is God's holy word. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. This encounter is found in a section of Mark's gospel where critics are asking questions and trying to trap Jesus. Uh, he's, in the, he's in the temple, he's been in the temple area, the, uh, this is coming up at the end of his life, and they're challenging him, and the, the challenge that's being asked here is, can we pay taxes to Caesar? And what's so interesting about this, there's a dynamic that you see happening all the time, and that is there are very strange bedfellows here together to challenge Jesus. It says, verse 13, they sent the Pharisees and the Herodians. These are very different groups. The Pharisees are a Jewish nationalistic party uh, that was opposed to Rome. They were purist, uh, uh, nationalist. Obviously, we know a lot about their uh, their teaching ministry and their doctrine from reading the Gospels, but I'm telling a little bit about more of their, if we could say it, their political view. Uh, they were opposed to Rome, uh, interfering with God's land and God's people. So they were sort of uh, anti-Rome. The Herodians on the other side were a Jewish party that was much more supportive of Rome. So these people did not agree, but 
The enemy of my enemy is my friend, right? So they come together and they challenge Jesus. And they they come with a clear purpose. Look at verse 13. They don't want open dialogue about a political issue. Verse 13, they come to trap him in his talk. They want to trap and expose Jesus because they are opposed to him. So they come and they sort of lay their trap with flattery. I mean, they don't believe a word of this. Look what they say, verse 14. They came and said, teacher, we know that you are true. You don't care about anyone's opinion. You're not swayed by appearances. You only teach the way of God. They're saying, hey, Jesus, we know you don't care about anything but truth. You don't care what the polls say about you. You don't care about how many people show up at one of your teaching gatherings. You're not concerned about how many likes you got on your Facebook post, Jesus. You only care about the truth. So they think they're luring Jesus in, and then they bait the trap with a question of the explosive issue of taxes in their day. Verse 14b, they say, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not. Now, here's the background on this question. Judea, where they are, had become a Roman province in 6 AD. 6 AD. And when the Romans made this a province, what they did was they took a census of all the people, and then they levied a tax on each person. Uh, And the word here that's actually translated taxes is uh, similar to the word for census. It was a census tax. It was called a poll tax, or a head tax. So the people were being taxed, not for their property, not for their income. This wasn't a sales tax. This was a tax for existing. Because you existed and had the privilege of being under the thumb of Rome, you got to pay a tax. And and the people of Israel had really struggled and suffered over the years under Roman taxation. But this tax in particular was irritating This was an offensive tax, and the reason is because for the people of God, Israel, this was God's land. If you remember in the Old Testament, God gave them this land. This was their land. They were God's people. Rome had no business taxing this as if this was their land, as this was was their people taking a head tax from each person who was there. So that's the controversy around the taxes. Well, here's the dilemma that Jesus faces in this dialogue. If he says, pay the tax, remember Israel hated the tax. If he said, pay the tax, he risks compromising because many people in his audience didn't think that you should pay taxes to Caesar, who by the way, claimed to be deity. So they didn't feel like it was right to pay that tax. So if Jesus says that, he could lose his audience, the people of Israel who say, Jesus, he's just a compromiser. How could he be the Messiah if he's saying pay taxes to Rome? On the other hand, if he says it's wrong to pay the tax, he's not a traitor to Israel, he's a traitor to Rome, the civil government. And that could cost his ministry, that could cost his life potentially. Because if he is teaching, refuse to pay the tax, then he could be viewed as an insurrectionist opposing the state. So they think they have him in this inescapable trap. There's no good answer. You either lose your audience or lose your head. So which is it going to be? Jesus. He knows their motives, though, is what the text says, and he sets 
his own trap for them. It says, verse 15, knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one, and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar, and and render to God the things that are God's. He takes the coin, this silver denarius, that's what you paid the tax with, and he said, whose face is on this coin? Well, it's Caesar Tiberius. And he says, what does it say on it? Well, the coin would have said, Tiberius Caesar, August son of the divine Augustus. The emperor was viewed as semi-divine, we could say, at that time. But still, Jesus says, give to Caesar what belongs to him. Caesar minted these coins, and so these coins belong to him. As we saw last week in Romans 13, where Paul uh, actually spoke positively and honored the government that he lived under. And here, Jesus as well is certainly saying that Rome is a legitimate government. And he's saying, give Caesar his due. You ride on Caesar's roads. You're experiencing peace, the Pax Romana. You're experiencing peace from invading nations by being, in essence, protected uh, as a province of Caesar's rule. So he, coined, he made the coins, his image is on it. Give him what he's due. And give God what he is due. So here's the point. Caesar can claim what bears his image, but God also claims what bears his image. What bears God's image? We do. We're created in the image of God. The coin had Caesar's image, but we, our souls, our very beings have the image of God. The coin belongs to Caesar, but your whole existence belongs to God. The taxes go to Caesar, but everything you are goes to God in our worship. Now, sometimes people read this and think, oh, okay, Jesus is laying out two distinct spheres, the sphere of Caesar and the sphere of God, the sphere of government and the sphere of religion. Some people read it that way, and that might look like this slide depicted visually. Uh, This is an image I got from author Jonathan Lehman, and he says, look, some people think it goes this way. Caesar's things are politics, government, that sort of thing, elections policy, laws, those sort of things. That's sort of Caesar's deal. And God, we saw, ordains government last week. There's no authority except from God, Romans 13. So Caesar's got the government thing. And then there's God's things. Well, that would be like worship, faith, church, Bible study, evangelism. And some people read that and say, what Jesus is saying is, you know, there's two where, there's the political sphere, that's natural, that's God's. There's the spiritual sphere. I'm sorry, that's natural, that's Caesar's. There's the spiritual sphere, and that is God's. But that's not what he's saying here at all. He's not saying that some things belong in the political arena and some things belong in the religious arena. For look at Caesar here. He too is created in the image of God. Caesar too owes everything to God. 
Jesus is not saying Caesar's in charge of politics and God is in charge of religion as if they are two equal spheres. That's not what the Bible teaches us. Rather, the Bible teaches us God is over everything. God is sovereign. Caesar is God's Caesar. And Caesar can only do what God allows Caesar to do. It's not two equal circles with two equal spheres of rule. This would be a much more accurate image of what he's saying. Everything is God's things. God rules the universe. He created and spoke it into being from the word of his power. God rules over all. And we could put a ton of circles in there, right? But one little circle is Caesar's things. God's government government comes under, ultimately, the rule of God. And this is a helpful image as opposed to the two circles side by side, I think, because what this communicates is that God is over politics. God is our ruler. He is our Lord, and our ultimate allegiance belongs to the big circle, not the little circle. Our ultimate hope is the Lord of the big circle, which can't even be captured by a circle because he rules over everything. But our allegiance belongs to the Lord of all, and under the Lord of all, there is this realm called politics where he gives delegated authority. But let's be clear, we must not put our hope in the little circle. We must not put our confidence and our trust in those who reside in the little circle. We put our confidence and trust in the one who rules over the little circle, the Lord Jesus Christ. While politics is important, and here's why politics is important, because God uh, gives authority, he gives delegated authority, and secondly, politics is important because it affects people. It affects their lives. Politics can act for the common good, And then it's a real blessing to the people. So politics is important because it affects people, but it is not ultimate. God is ultimate. Politics can easily easily raise um, influence in our heart so that it feels ultimate. It feels like there's nothing more important than the coming election. It seems like there's nothing more influential than rulers and leaders and policy. Politics can easily become an idol. An idol is anything we substitute for God. We're to go to God for hope. We're to go to God for rest and peace and confidence. We're to go to God for well-being in our souls, not to politics. But when we do, when we do, we make politics an idol, and we can find ourselves rendering to Caesar what is God's. That's the danger. Render to Caesar what is Caesar. But let's put this in proportion. Render to God everything, for you are created in his image. Our party, and I don't mean our party like we, if you're a guest here, like we share a party in this room, we don't teach that. So I'm saying our party, your party, my party, let's say it that way. Our party, our candidate, can easily become a substitute hope instead of hope in God. 
I recently read a book about politics, a Christian, a Christian book about politics. I've been actually reading a lot of Christian books about politics. It's been very edifying, but I am looking forward to November 4th, the day after the election. So at any rate, uh, this is an account he relays. See if you can relate. He writes this, it was late on a Tuesday night in November. My wife and I, along with several other couples from church, were leaning into the blue light of the television like mosquitoes to a bug zapper. I glanced around the room at my wife and friends. Some people were standing, some sitting. A few guests were clutching their phones, heads down, refreshing for updates, then scrolling, scrolling, scrolling. I found worried faces glued to the TV. One friend had her arms crossed as if to deflect the pain of what political analysts had predicted. Our night had begun with jokes and laughter, but now, hours later, we were silent with only the commentary of cable news pundits filling the room. The electoral college tally was adding up. We saw the numbers on the bottom of the screen, and what those numbers showed was ominous. We started to imagine what life would be like if, heaven forbid, this man came into power as president. Then it happened. A flashy graphic slid across the screen with a swoosh accompanied by overly dramatic music. Then the news anchor made the big announcement, affirming as true what the political analysts said might be coming. It was a definitive statement, one that we had worried was remotely possible, but one we didn't dream would actually come to pass. He had won. He was becoming president. The one we had feared. What would become of our country? How could this happen to us? How could we endure life under a person who so clearly did not share our values, our Christian values? How had our prayers not been answered? In the silence of the room, as we absorbed the weight of this news, it felt as if we were under attack. We were about to enter a dark period, four years of trial for Christians. We had lost. Then he writes, this story is a fictional illustration. It exposes something that is true for so many of us. What you may have noticed in the illustration above is that I intentionally did not include the identity of a candidate who won or the respective party. So when you heard the election night story, you probably imagined a particular politician or a particular party affiliation as the winner of the nightmare scenario. For some, this fictional account could have happened in November 2016. For others, it could have happened in November 2012, or maybe it was November 2008, or 2004, or 2000, or 1996, or 1992. Every election matters. It's naive to say otherwise, but no political commentator's election night announcement can beat the fact that we already have good news. 
the ultimate good news. This is why we need to keep reminding ourselves the assurance of scriptures from the very lips of Jesus himself, John 16, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have tribulation, but take heart. Let me read that again. Take heart because I have overcome the world. I have overcome the world. The story that the author conveys and the catch that it is fictional is to expose our hearts to describe the sort of fear uh, that we experience and to reveal that many of us have a substitute hope. That's political idolatry, idolatry, a substitute hope. As we approach the election, you may ask, well, where is my hope? That's a good question. Where is my hope? Where is my trust? I mean, maybe you hear the story I just read and you say, yeah, but that's fine, but I want what's best for this country, this country which I love, and its future is on the line in this election. This is a battle for the soul of America. Pause right there and consider that language. Where are we placing our hope? The hope for the soul of America is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the hope for the soul of every nation on earth. There is no other eternal hope but the message of Jesus. Our nation will never be saved. You know this, but it's helpful to be reminded. Our nation will never be saved by the right candidate the right platform, the right party, the right justices in place, the right laws. We will be saved by the right Savior, the only Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That is our salvation. And you know what? We do harm to the cause of the gospel when we sort of crumble under political panic and start speaking and acting as if somehow our king is threatened by anything that would happen on earth. Go read Psalm 2 this week. It may be in the devotional. I think it's in the devotional we're going through. But read Psalm 2 and see that, 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 that the psalmist says, the nations rage, but the one who sits in heavens laughs. God laughs at nations and candidates and parties and anyone who acts like they will rule or they will reign. The power of Caesar, again, we saw in the, the drawing, which I thought was helpful, that the power of Caesar is only delegated power from God. He is God's Caesar. That the Lord is our hope. Some say in this election, come on now, be serious with me. They're, they're, they would say to me, based on what I'm saying probably, that our government and our future is in the balance. I don't, I'm not a prophet. I don't, I'm, not a, I'm not a political scientist either. So I don't know if that's true. That might be true. That might not be true. And, and let me just make clear that I love our country, and I care, and I I deeply value the religious liberty that allows me to stand in this pulpit and say these things without fear of government oppression. So I value religious liberty. I value our democracy. I, value, I hope our system of government does not change, and I hope that our freedoms go on for generation after generation. But as good as those gifts are, they're not our hope. They're not our ultimate hope. 
They can't be. They're not greater or more valuable or more precious than Jesus himself. And the proof of this is just think about what we're reading over the last two weeks, the text of Scripture, and we will see that God historically has done his most powerful work, his greatest work through people under tyrannical governments. Now, let me be clear. I don't want a tyrannical government. But my, my greatest hope can't be that that doesn't happen. My greatest hope has to be in the Lord. Look, starting with Jesus, the whole gospel comes to us under a tyrannical government. The birth of the church, the ministry of Paul under Nero. Paul speaks positively of Nero's government, which will behead him. The text we just read Think about this. Jesus says, give the tax, the denarius, the poll tax to Caesar. Do you know what that tax funded? That tax funded specifically the military. The military which held the citizens of Judea under their thumb. That tax went to pay for the nails, the spikes that nailed Jesus to a cross. But that did not hinder The gospel going forth, that did not hinder him coming up out of the tomb. That did not hinder a spirit empowered, drenched by the power of the spirit, church announcing the good news to people who would risk everything once they met Jesus Christ. That did not stop it. That has not stopped the gospel from going forth through all kinds of circumstances, under all kinds of governments, including the freedom of democracy that we enjoy and should vote for and pray for, but never rest our entire hope in. Some of the elevated rhetoric today makes it sound like, wow, if this happens or that happens or this candidate or that party, what is God going to do? It's foolishness when you think about it, that there are political parties, but there is a kingdom that rules over them. I'm not saying politics isn't important. We covered that last week. I'm just saying it's not ultimately important. It's not the ultimate source for change in a culture. What changes a culture is the gospel gripping Christians' hearts, the gospel gripping the church's hearts, so that we trust in Jesus as our king and we act like it and we talk like it. When the culture looks at the church and they see the church with a wholesale commitment to a political party, and if that's a more progressive church, it might be the Democrat party. If that's a more conservative church, it might be the Republican party. It doesn't matter for what I'm saying. When the the culture looks and sees the church embedded with a political party that that buys wholesale into a political party, then the church becomes impotent as an agent for change because we don't offer anything different. If we're just parroting what the Democrat Party says or parroting what the Republican Party says, they can get that somewhere else. What we say that is different is that we have a king overall, and we're part of a kingdom overall. The Lord Jesus Christ, King of kings, and Lord of lords. Okay, this all sounds nice, maybe you say, but how do I know if I'm putting my hope in politics? How do I know if I have a substitute hope? Here's a test. When you think about the election, 
when you see something on social media, when you watch the news, when you read, uh, you know, the news, however you take your news, when, when you think, when you talk with a friend about the election, when you think about the election, do you experience in your heart anxiety, fear, worry, trepidation? That's symptom of a substitute hope. Because the fear stems from, I look ahead and I see a circumstance, and if it doesn't happen the way I want it to happen, or think it should happen, or maybe even that's the godly circumstance that should happen, a political outcome, then I'm fearful, and I'm anxious, and I'm worried, as opposed to trusting Christ. Now, we should be concerned about this election and any election, but that concern should be turned to, fear, uh, to prayer. That concern should be turned to prayer. That concern should be turned to voting. That concern should be turned to fixing our mind on what the Scripture says. That's where the concern should lead, not worry and not fear. Jesus addresses this Jesus addresses where we should be looking when we're afraid. Though Jesus doesn't talk about an election, Jesus talks about what to do when you don't know if you'll have enough food to live, and you don't know if you'll have clothing to wear or to put on your children. Those are far deeper issues than the outcome of any particular election. He says, Matthew 6, O you of little faith, therefore do not be anxious, saying, what shall we wear, or what shall we drink, what, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. The Gentiles are unbelievers. He's saying, don't act like an unbeliever. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them, but seek first the kingdom, there we go, and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. What he says is, when you are worried, look to your Father, first of all, and look at his, the whole passage talks about looking at his faithfulness to us, and pursue the kingdom. That means, in this context, lift my eyes off of an election and think about the kingdom. Think about who's on the throne. Think about who is the everlasting ruler. Think about the scripture like we just heard read to us this morning from Isaiah. The government is on his shoulders. He's everlasting. He's the prince of peace. Think about that. That is where our hope comes from. Listen, we look to the kingdom because we have confidence in the king. We don't look for our hope, our peace, and our emotional well-being in a political outcome. If my heart is tied to a political outcome, then I'm going to be on a roller coaster until the election, and then I may be falsely elated or I may be down in the dumps, terror-stricken like the story I read to you earlier. Listen to how Paul writes about life in a dark political environment. Paul writes in Romans, we read last week, about what it's like, uh, what gov- how he viewed government. But listen to what he says. This is how Paul's approach is in living in scary times. Romans 8 35, it says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, or check this out, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
No matter what happens politically in our city, in our state, in our nation, nothing will separate us. No ruler, not death or life itself, not persecution, famine, nakedness, none of that will separate us from the secure comfort of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's not just some verse to stick on a mug or to buy in a card at the Christian bookstore and send to somebody. That is a verse that roots us in times of political uncertainty and in Paul's case, times of political darkness. This is the hope. No matter what happens, you are secure in the love of God. Will things get more difficult? I don't know, maybe. Will things get better? I don't know, maybe. But I do know this, nothing will separate us from the love of God. Don't buy into a false substitute hope. Stick with the true hope, Christ. Number two, these last two are very brief. A substitute identity. Some of us are tempted to draw our identity from our political party. We, we draw our identity from our politics. We draw who we are. It defines us. And when things go with our party or with our politics, we feel good. When they don't, we panic. So we draw comfort, security, identity in being conservative, in being progressive, in being libertarian, Republican, Democrat, whatever it is. And that is a substitute identity when that allegiance is, is raised too high. I recently watched a sermon by Tony Evans. Tony Evans is a longtime pastor at Oak Cliff Bible Fellowship. And early in the sermon, he was sort of teasing that he was going to tell what his political party was. And most pastors don't do that. A few do. Most don't. But he didn't strike me, what I know of him, as the kind of guy that's going to come out and say, this is the party I'm a part of. So I watched because I, what's this guy going to say? And when he came to announcing his political affiliation, he said, this is my political affiliation. I am a kingdom independent. He created his own political party. I thought, I'm signing up for that one. So now there's at least two people in that party, and you're welcome to join. We meet here every Sunday under the lordship of Jesus Christ. But a kingdom independent. And he said, you can be Democrat, just you have to be Democrat light. You can be Republican, but you have to be Republican light is what he said. And then he said this, but you are not obligated to either party because no party always votes God's way. Our highest allegiance is to the king. Our identity is child of the father, citizen of the king, of the kingdom, child of the king. And when the kingdom clashes with our political parties, we must go kingdom every time. So what is your identity? Where do you find meaning? How do you see yourself? With whom do you identify? Democrat, Republican, independent? Or as a follower of Jesus Christ who lives in his kingdom? Let's beware a substitute identity in times like this. And thirdly, a substitute loyalty. Here, here's a concern. I just have a pastoral concern for all of us here. Certainly, I'm, I'm preaching all this to myself. When I yell, I'm yelling at me more than you, so, do, so don't worry. Many Christians are blinded to partisan loyalty. They only see the faults of the other side and are blind to the faults of their party and or their candidate. Like you, probably, I watch the debates. But at the end of the debate, this, well, I always do this, but at the end of this week, here's how I watch the debate. At the end, I want to hear all the commentary. But I don't like echo chambers, and I don't want to just hear one side. So I, get, I keep the remote in my hand. 
And I'm going back and forth. It was like a tennis match. I'm going back and forth between, and you know who they are, the liberal channel and the conservative channels, or liberal channels, conservative channels. So I'm going back and forth, hearing what they all have to say. And I just sat back this last week and thought, did these guys even watch the same debate? There is no, they're like, all, all I saw was this. And this person said, all I saw was that. No one saw any fault, except they would feign a little thing. Well, you know, I think the other guy got in a jab here or there. They said a little thing. But basically, is our guy was glorious, and their guy was an absolute dog, just like we expected. The reality is this. Each party is biblically deficient at points. And we need to realize that because when our party is an idol, a place we go for identity, a place we go for hope, a place we go for comfort, we won't admit or even see those weaknesses. When I'm blinded and I have a blind loyalty, an idolatrous loyalty to a party, I will, when I hear something about my candidate or my party, I'll just make excuses and quickly turn to the other side. Yeah, but their guy, their lady, whoever it is running, We'll do that. We're blinded. And sometimes we think, well, this is an all-out culture war for the soul of the nation. It's, I have to be skewed. I can't admit the fault on my side because there's too much at stake. And this kind of party loyalty among Christians, this inflated party loyalty, this inflated partisanship does great damage. It has devastating effects relationally. One of the great tragedies of these polarized days is how many of us have, as Christians have damaged and broken relationships because of politics. I'm sure it's always happened in generations, but it just seems to be greater now. It's grievous, isn't it? It, doesn't, it breaks our heart. Parents and adult children that used to have a great relationship, but now it's just cool even icy because of the upcoming. We've got to walk on eggshells around mom and dad. Can't say anything to those kids. I don't know what got into them. That's not how I raised them. So you, it, it's like we, we can't even have a relationship because politics has become so important that it defines our love for one another. Friends have separated because of political arguments on social media. Don't talk. Kind of separated. People have left churches. And within churches where people stay, there, there are situations where people have broken fellowship with other church members because of a different take or opinion in the coming election. This is sad because only our loyalty to Christ should have relational bearing like this. Listen, if somebody doesn't want to talk to you because you love Jesus Christ, so be it. He warned of that. He said that's what it's going to be like to be a Christian. But if they won't talk to me or relate to me, they love Jesus, I love Jesus, he shed his blood for us, we're unified in him, but we're not talking because I think this and you think this about an election, that's a problem. And it shows a, a loyalty that is misplaced. A loyalty that is misplaced. If you're pulling away from people that you love, friends, family, fellow Christians, church members, if you're pulling away from them because of a different politics, because they said this on Facebook, or they liked that 
Oh, that's a really a classic, isn't it? They didn't even say anything. They just liked somebody else's post. Oh, you know, I, no, I'm, I'm separate. They like that? Oh, that's going to affect when I see them. If you're pulling away from people because of their politics, flip the script and ask, how would you like to be treated by those who differ from you? Do you want them to cancel you because you have a different opinion on a secondary matter, not Christ? A little golden rule goes a long way in circumstances like this. As Christians, we have a hierarchy of loyalties, and our loyalty to Christ supersedes all other loyalties. And the best proof of this is Jesus' own disciples. Think about his disciples. Matthew, who actually wrote a gospel, is a tax collector. That doesn't mean he just works for the IRS. What it means is that he is a Jew is collecting money from fellow Jews to pay to the enemy oppressive government, the Romans. So what it means is that he's sold out to Rome. He's on the side of Rome against his own people. Matthew, the tax collector, in his gospel says there's another disciple in the 12. His name's Simon the Zealot. The Zealots were a Jewish party, a Jewish political faction that had previously revolted against Rome and currently are not paying taxes to Rome out of loyalty to the Israelite people. So, in Jesus' band of disciples, how do you think political discussion went while we're all frying some fish and having a conversation there? One of the guys works for the government. The other guy tried to overthrow the government. And they're both submitted to a different king, a king over Caesar, the Lord Jesus Christ. Loyalty to Jesus means loyalty to his people and a commitment to unity even where we have differences. I'm going to close with a quote by an author and a pastor named Scott Sauls that really has been challenging me as I've ruminated over this quote. This is what he says. For whom do I feel greater affection, and with whom do I feel most kindred? Greater affection and most kindred. Number one, people who agree with my politics but don't share my faith. Or number two, people who share my faith but don't agree with my politics. If it's the first instead of the second, we're rendering unto Caesar things that belong to God. As we close this service and as we are each week in this series on politics, we're receiving communion. And this is the reminder. This is it right here. The the invitation to the table is an invitation in Christ. It's for those who have trusted Christ. It's for those uh, who have uh, been saved by Jesus and made part of his body. The table is not fenced by your nationality. You don't bring your nationality. Only certain nationalities get to receive. No, anybody, Jew, Gentile, anybody who's in Christ receives. And you don't come up to the Lord's table uh, identifying and being worthy because you have your Democrat pin on or your Republican pin on or anything like this because because you're adequately conservative to bear reception at the Lord's table or you're adequately progressive and open-minded to bear reception. No. There's only one group of people that come to Jesus, and that's those who are in him and have trusted him. So as we prepare to receive the Lord's table, let's pray, and then in a moment we'll receive. Lord, 
we thank you for your faithfulness to us. Thank you that you've made us your people. Thank you that you have saved us. And Lord, we pray for the grace to have our hope in you. Lord, I confess I'm fearful at times during these days. Lord, I hear messages of panic, and I'm tempted to buy into those. Many of us are in this room. And so we just pray that the comfort found in your rule would settle our hearts and grant us grace and peace. Lord, I have convictions. I have a conscience on political issues. And Lord, I'm tempted to look at someone who thinks differently in this church or fellow believer and, and, and say, come on. Lord, I pray that I would look at them as one for whom you died, a son or daughter of yours whom you love. Lord, I pray that we would all maintain the spirit of unity and the bond of peace because of the blood of Jesus, whose name we pray and whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.